Welcome back to part two of our podcast with Nora Shetter. We do want to note that this episode does raise themes of suicide. So if this raises any concerns within yourself, family, friends, please reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Thanks for listening. So I've worked in a lot of different emergency service sort of um, roles um, in the past and um, seen a lot of uh, suffering and and change and and death Um, and almost um, that sort of natural, the the combination between that sort of natural death and the the natural suffering, sorry, and then the suffering that sort of we we create um, day to day. So like give some examples of... Oh, so, you know, sort of tragedies, sort of, sort of roadside accidents that have occurred. Suicides. Suicides. Um, and that probably sort of the, the suicide side of things, I'm interested in how sort of Buddhism looks at that, mm. um, how it looks at sort of someone ending their life, you know, almost um, taking control of, of their ending um, in, a, in a quite a lethal fashion and how, how you view that personally and how even Buddhism use that as well yeah that's a a good question and an interesting topic to explore um i don't know that we could say there's a a buddhist view or a buddhist answer to that um i'll kind of backpedal a bit and just say for me buddhism is a tool and in the same way that i may have a bag of tools where here's a hammer here's a screwdriver here's some pliers they all serve different functions for different things. And for me, the appropriate tool for coming to have a, a better understanding of my own mind, Buddhism is a wonderful tool for that. Uh, it may not be the best tool to understand, um, I don't know, the political repercussions of immigration or something like that. It may not play a role there because it's not the tool for that. Um, so when it comes to some topics, I think Buddhism may be a lesser skillful tool than say psychology. You know, if I'm trying to understand, um, uh, or or ethics or anything, anything like that. So when it comes to this topic of, um, suicide, uh, I think, you know, Buddhism deals heavily with suffering. That's kind of the primary focus of Buddhism as a tool is understanding and alleviating suffering. And I would say there's certainly a significant amount of suffering that's taking place for someone to want to end their life. So it can be a powerful tool probably to uh, help someone in a bad place to understand why do I feel what I'm feeling? Why does this hurt so much? And, um, so it could be a tool that that springs there. Like if I were to encounter a friend that I knew was uh, experiencing um, thoughts of, of, of self-harm or suicide, I would for sure want to be available to help them use something like Buddhism as a tool to say, well, let's sit with this for a moment. Um, I think, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with wanting to end your life um, because as it's so painful. Um, 
but then you could argue, well, what about the, the pain it's going to cause those who stay behind your parents, your siblings, children, um, it, because that those are all things that need to be factored. Um, Buddhism deals very heavily with this notion of interdependence that things inter are. So if I, I'm interdependent with all the things that are not me, right? My parents, my siblings, my spouse, my kids, uh, people who are involved with uh, where I work or the podcast listeners, you know, if I'm suddenly gone, all of those things are affected. So that makes me feel some sort of um, a responsibility to say, well, I wouldn't want to just end it for me just because that seems like the right thing for me. It may not be the right thing for my kids. Okay. Well then I'll, I guess I'll stick around. Um, but again, that every circumstance is so unique. You know, I've, I've thought about this before. I've thought, well, what if it's somebody who's suffering greatly in life and has zero connections to anyone else? You know, they don't have family, maybe they're homeless or I don't know. Does it, could it be a compassionate thing under a certain set of circumstances? I think it could. Uh, I don't think there's a universal answer, but it's, it's good or it's bad. It's like, well, we'd have to visit every case, case by case. But I do think it's unfortunate when it happens without any sort of introspection. If somebody wasn't able to sit with those difficult emotions long enough to really be analytical and say, you know what, this is, this is what I think is the right thing. I'm going to do it. That's unfortunate. Um, because I, I do think maybe under some circumstances, somebody could arrive at that conclusion and say, this probably is the best thing. And I think under a lot of circumstances, that introspection may be what it takes for them to realize, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I think the reactivity, I guess we could say, is kind of the problem there. If I'm experiencing pain or discomfort to the point where my habitual reactivity is, oh, I don't want to feel this, let's get out of this. And I either do something about it, like suicide, or, or even if it's not self inflicted and maybe it's outward right oh i'm feeling this discomfort so i'm going to go kill this other person that happens all the time too um so yeah it, it's it's a big topic that i think needs to be tackled very case by case mm. Mm -hmm. What, what role does do you think capacity has in being able to even get to that introspection i mean for a lot of people you talk to um, even friends, family, even sometimes in my, my, you know, in my younger years, it was how, how do I even start the process of introspection? How do I even start, you know, understanding my internal world? You know, people often say, well, I, I, I can't reflect. Mm. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a barrier there, something's stopping me. Um, I'm constantly in that reactivity space. Mm. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was reminding me of something my friend was saying the other day um, that, that she was sort of having some issues with her partner and uh, she said she loves him, but she's finding it really hard to connect with him because um, th that internal world, that being able to talk about each other's internal worlds, it's just not there. Um, and, and yeah, that, that question, you know, it, is anyone capable of, of going there of, of, of one, you know, do, do you have to just have the want or is it more about, you know, the, the need or the circumstances that cause you to go there? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think because you, you can't make anyone go there. We know that. Um, yeah. But you're saying, can we even make ourselves go there? What if yeah. What if we can't? I think some people uh, are not in the, uh, haven't had the causes and conditions that would allow them to go there. Mm. Um, so, which is a big part of why Buddhism is not, um, it's not something to be preached. It's like, mm. it's a set of tools. And if it's, if I encounter it and think, wow, this is very useful for me in my life. Well, great. But that doesn't mean it's going to be useful for you in your life. Mm. So I'm not going to try to push it on you. Um, I think when it comes to introspection, some people will reach a certain phase through causes and conditions that will make them suddenly want to be more introspective and reflect on their, on their own, you know, look inward. Some won't, some will probably never have the need or the desire. Um, and they'll just go about living life in reactive mode and they're perfectly fine with it. Cause they, maybe they don't even realize that there's another way that it could be They're They're fine. What about um, with, with, you Noah? do you, do you remember a time when you were just in that reactive mode or have you always been someone that's want, wanted to look inward? Um, I do think I've had a natural tendency to throughout my whole life to, to kind of think deeply, if we want to call it that. I've always been the kind that uh, had the disposition to question things. Uh, this is this. It's like, hmm, why is that? I, I've always had that inclination. Um, I, I've actually thought of my dad as an example of someone who really has never had the need to be introspective. You know, I've thought often, uh, at least in uh, in our dynamic with with my my dad. Um, there were stages that were difficult where I feel like, man, our personalities clash a lot. He's very strong type a personality. That's always pushing something. He's striving for this or that and wants you to be doing that too. And I'm the opposite. I'm very non-confrontational. I just like to sit and process things. There's no need to push anything. Um, So in our communication styles, we would struggle. Sometimes I would call, him just to chat. And I wanted, I just wanted to chat and he wanted to solve whatever he perceived the problem was. And I was like, no, I, I don't think this is a problem. I just wanted to talk to you. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. So I've had the thought with him in the past, like, why is it so, why, why wouldn't he has zero, had zero interest in ever sitting to meditate. It's like, why on earth would you ever do that? You got to be doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I've thought about this, like, can maybe this for some people, it just doesn't work. And I've thought uh, the causes and conditions that I had in my upbringing that have led me to be how I am are not the same for him. Mm-hmm. And I know from his experience, he grew up in an orphanage. Uh, he grew up very much always trying to do something to get out of being in trouble or um, running away from the discomfort of his right. upbringing. And I think that just carried with him his whole life. I, I just can't ever imagine that he would have been in that position where he would say, you know what, I'm going to sit and try to become introspective and meditate. Yeah, I just don't have, see it happening. That would have almost been dangerous to just stop for him if he, if he was in this. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was set up in a, in a way to run his whole life, always running, running to something and from something. 
through my introspection, I was able to arrive at a place where I was completely at peace with allowing him to be who he is. He didn't need to be introspective. He doesn't need to be peaceful or meditative. He can be the reactive person that he is because I finally came to accept like radical acceptance that that's just how he is. Uh, We won't ever have that communication style that I have with my twin brother or that I have with my mom. And that's fine. It doesn't need to be different than what it is. And that made the last, uh, I'd say that that transition happened roughly five to six years before he passed, but it made that those, that experience so much more enjoyable because I no longer felt like, Hey, you would be a better you if you would do this. I didn't feel that anymore. Suddenly it was like, you're just you. And that's totally fine. You be you. And I totally accept you the way you are. And, uh, and that brought about peace, peace for me and probably peace for him too. Cause I don't know if, I don't know that he ever perceived anything, but maybe he did. If he did, he never said anything, but it just made our relationship so much more liberated. We were just allowed to have the relationship that we have. And that's perfectly fine. Just the way it is. I, uh, I've got a question about doubt when it sort of, when it comes into all of this around sort of curiosity in, and introspection around having this sort of philosophical doubt and questioning, because it's something that I've experienced all my life and it, it sometimes leads you to paths where, you know, you, you, you doubt your relationship, you doubt what you put, so your purpose in life. And it's a, it's a, it's a freeing experience to have, but it's also sort of works into um, some limitations with, with building relationships with people or, you know, because you can't, I, I found it quite difficult to be able to communicate doubt in a sort of neutral way, you know, in, in a quite a philosophical questioning way without it sounding like there's a sort of decision that's going to come next um, from the doubt. Because to me, doubt's just, questioning just sort of looking beyond the curtains a little bit and always found it quite difficult or I'm always hyper vigilant of how someone else might perceive philosophical doubt um I'm wondering if you've ever experienced anything like that or you, you do to this day um yeah I think I have uh, again with my upbringing and the 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 religious upbringing that I had gave me a very strong sense of certainty. I knew that I was in the right, on the right path, headed to the right place, doing the right things. And I, I I think I could comfortably say I had no doubt about that. I believed it wholeheartedly that uh, my understanding of reality and reality were the same thing given to me by my beliefs. Um, So I, And I think that carried over into a lot of things, the things that decisions that you make about career or the person that you're dating in college. you know, I felt like, well, I prayed about it. And so I have no doubt that this is who I should be dating. Um, And then later in life, encountered doubt, a very deep existential doubt when when suddenly it felt like the the rug had been pulled out from under my feet and all the things that I was so certain about were I was no longer certain about. And that was a very scary feeling because it feels good to think that you're right and that you're certain. And it feels very uneasy to suddenly think, oh, maybe I'm not. Maybe everything that I've thought isn't what I thought. 
Um, and uh, again, encountering Buddhism in this transition and in this process, I came across the notion of doubt from the Buddhist perspective uh, through little Zen sayings like, you know, for example, uh, big doubt, big awakening, little doubt, little awakening, no doubt, no awakening. It's like, oh, geez, what does that mean? <laughs> and what, I, what I've come to understand, I think, is doubt in relationship to certainty. You know, we go through life thinking or, or, or hoping to have some form of certainty. If I do this, then that will not happen or this will happen. And I often talk about this in the podcast that life is more like a game of Tetris where you don't know what shape of piece you're getting next, but we go through it thinking we're playing chess. If I put this here, life will respond that way. And if I'm really good at this, I'll actually beat life at the game of chess. And, and, and what you have there on um, is essentially on one side, a game of playing with certainty. I'm certain that if I do this, that will happen. And on the other side, you're playing the game of total uncertainty. I don't even know what's coming next. So um, I found in my own experience that my sense of certainty and external things, this is the nature of reality, or this is this, and that is that went away but I did find an anchoring almost to speak to speak of in internally where now I'm certain that I don't know what's coming my way, but I'm certain I'll be okay with it because my, my um, faith, if we want to call it, that is no longer in anything external. It's in my ability to adapt to whatever life's throwing at me, mm. uh, whether that's a difficulty, like now I'm dealing with the loss of a job or, um, or the ultimate one, oh, now I'm dealing with death. It's like, okay, well, I don't know what happens next, but I don't have to know. I just know that if something happens, I'll, I'll be fine. If, if nothing happens, well, I'll be fine too. <laughs> um, so that sense of certainty, I think, and the way certainty correlates with doubt, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of liberation that takes place when we no longer feel the need to be so certain. This yeah. is this and that is that. Yeah, and it almost like the, the the situation will tell you what to do rather than you having to tell the situation what to do. Yeah. Now you see this in, in everything in life. Just think of technology. You know, if we were a hundred or two hundred years ago sitting around a campfire having a conversation. We, it would never occur to us that someday we could be on opposite sides of the planet having the same conversation. We'd say, that's, I can't even think about that. It's unfathomable. Um, and, but you, you adapt, you know, we, we've adapted to the point where we are at a place in time where we can have a conversation sitting thousands of miles apart from each other. And that's totally normal and fine. Um, and that to me is the essence of, of adaptability and certainty and uncertainty. It's like, we'll adapt to what is at this, at the time, you know, maybe a thousand years from now, we'll be in some virtual space sitting there talking to each other. I don't know. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's very freeing to know that, I mean, the thing about change, right? That it, not everything will change. There's something f- mm. freeing about that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and just to kind of steer this in the direction of, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the bigger, serious, more serious uh, picture, the existential angst, I think that we feel, uh, I think a lot of us kind of dread 
the day we will cease to exist, right? That's what's scary about death is I don't know what happens. Um, but what's interesting to me, especially with, with death or, or if we, non-existence, if you want to call it that, um, we may dread the day that we will cease to exist, but we never dread the day before we existed, right? Nobody goes around thinking, man, had I only been born a day earlier or, you know, three weeks earlier, we don't do that. But with death, we do. It's like, man, if I could hold on for one more day or one more week, I don't want to end. I don't want it to end on this end of the spectrum, but we never worry about it on this other side of the spectrum at the beginning. Um, and I think for me, that's kind of an interesting thought experiment to recognize why do I not fear it the other way prior to being born? I have no emotional attachment to any sort of feeling about the day before I was born. Um, why, why do I feel that at the tail end of, of when my story seems to end, if it didn't start the day I was born, you know, what were you the day before you were born? You still existed somewhere in some way. Well, then why is that not going to be the same case at the tail end of it? You're, You're still there the next day. Um, Anyway, that's just a fun thought, thought experiment. Yeah, and so it's a very much a rabbit hole that we go down. Yeah, Alan Watts. Alan Watts yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's yeah. The fact that we, yeah, that we, that we, we don't contemplate our existence before we actually existed. We, it's very one directional, right? You know, we don't we mm-hmm. don't go back and see the full picture, or we don't want to. You know, it, it doesn't serve us. There's not a purposeful function behind. You know, going backwards mm. but really there's some there's some there's some power in that for sure yeah mm. yeah beautiful all right well i think we're just reaching time um so we'll end it there unless there's anything either of you wanted to no i mean i could keep going <laughs> yeah i don't want to take too much of your time nor yeah. already deeply appreciative of yeah spending time with us yeah, well, thank, thank you. you so I, I always enjoy having discussions like this and yeah. just talking. It's, yeah. I think it's such an incredible thing. Like, like I mentioned earlier while we were talking, it's pretty neat to think that we're so far apart yeah. in terms of distance and we're sitting here talking as if we were talking in front of each other. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah.